Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, a memoir by the creator of Nike. Phil, he graduated from a good school, University of Oregon. He went and got his master's at Stanford. He'd survived a year-long hitch in the army. His, his resume said that he was a learned and accomplished soldier. He was 24 years old. He was a man on paper, but he still felt like a kid. Yeah, he was... Uh, on the paper, he was looking pretty good, but at the same time, he hadn't really experienced any of the good stuff in life, not even any of the temptations or excitement. He hadn't had any drugs yet. He hadn't broken any rules. He never smoked a ciggy, never broke a law, and he'd never been with a girl. He's a bit of a 24-year-old virgin, not <laughs> quite a 40-year-old right. virgin, but- He was on his way there, that's for sure. There, yeah. He said it was the 1960s, you know, it was the age of rebellion. He felt like he was the only kid in America who hadn't rebelled. Uh, he'd never cut loose. He'd never done the unexpected- He was kind of dwelling on all the things he wasn't, all the things he hadn't done. Quite an introspective 24-year-old, you might say. Um, But one thing he did know is he wanted to be successful. But unlike his friends, they all sort of knew exactly what success Mm. meant because you got conventional paths laid out in front of you, but that didn't just smell so good for old Philly boy. (laughs) That's right. He thought, well, success. What is successful success? What does that mean? Money? Maybe. And what about a wife, kids, a house? Yeah, sure. If if I get lucky enough, then there was something deep down that he was searching for something else, something more than just those things. He, He had this aching sense that our time here was short, shorter than anyone could ever even know. He wanted something meaningful. He wanted something purposeful. He wanted something creative. Above all, he wanted something different. He wanted something different and he wanted to leave a mark on the world and he wanted to win. Um, Or put another way, he just simply didn't want to lose. So he was quite introspective and he eventually landed on what he really wanted his life to be about and that was play. The secret of happiness, he'd kind of always suspected the essence of beauty and truth, all that we kind of ever need to know. Lay somewhere in the moment, he said, where it's kind of like if the ball's in midair, you know, so you're playing gridiron, the quarterback passes it, the ball's just floating in midair, you know, is the receiver going to catch it? Is the defender going to intercept it? Is, they going to, is it just going to hit the deck? Or maybe another metaphor, you know, is kind of like the boxers when they're just approaching that bell, you know, both competitors know they're sort of near the end or a runner when they're approaching the finish line, the crowd rises or... Maybe in Australia, the horse race, you know, and there's two neck and neck, which one's going to get their nose in front and everyone's kind of cheering, everyone's hoping their bet gets up. He said that that kind of feeling is what he wanted his life to be about. And that's it. That's what always led to his crazy idea, which is going to lead to this life that he was really after. And you're a 24-year-old, you're like, will this work and will it work? And you're Probably not. You're probably just throwing a ball, your gridiron ball from right. from the middle Lail of nowhere Mary. just into the middle of the jungle where no one's there to see it or hear it. But he thought maybe it just might. Phil Knight was a runner and he, every runner just runs mile after mile. You never kind of know why you're running. You tell yourself that you're running towards some goal, chasing some rush. But Phil says really you run because the alternative, which is stopping, scares you to death. So he told himself, you know, everyone else can call your idea crazy, but you just got to keep going. That's it. So that's what he thought with his, his crazy idea. Let's just start running. Let's just start running and just see what happens. And he gave himself the advice, just never stop, never stop. And this urgent advice, which came out of the blue, just out of inspiration entirely. Um, and he somehow just managed to take this advice. And half a century later, it's the best advice, maybe the only advice that any of us should ever give. Phil went up to his father and said, you know, so dad, you remember that crazy idea I had back at Stanford? 
It was one of the final classes he had. It was a seminar on entrepreneurship, and he'd written a paper about shoes. Now, the paper had kind of evolved from just some assignment, and it turned into a bit of an obsession. He was a runner, so he knew a lot about shoes. He was a bit of a business buff, so he knew a lot about case studies around Japanese camera companies uh, that had cut into the American market, which had once been dominated by Germans. And so he thought in his paper, okay, I can probably find a bit of an intersection here. Uh, it seemed so obvious, so simple, with such massive potential, he could probably find a way to crack into the shoe market. Yeah, he was obsessed with this thing at university. So he spent weeks and weeks on that paper, just devoured pretty much everything he could find on importing and exporting. And it got to the point where he was just like stoked with what he put together um, and gave the formal presentation to the class. And as you do, you're a bit nervous and excited and he's, he's full of enthusiasm as he's dropping um, truth bombs on the <laughs> class about his paper. And basically, there's just a formal boredom. Um, no one asked a question, and they greeted all his passion and intensity, which is basically vacant stares, <laughs> as you would at, at uni. Everyone's just sort of trying to get a grade and uh, aren't so passionate about that. That's right. Now, what was that episode we did? How you don't say any questions because there's no one that's going to ever ask a question. You should have said, "Turn to your mate and ask uh, two questions." That's a good one. Yeah, I think it was the five elements of it effective was thinking. Like that, yeah. So he had this idea and he wanted to, as we said at the start, he wanted to make his mark on the world, but kind of in order to do that, he kind of had to go out there and see the world first. He says it's like when you're running a race, you got to go and walk the track, get a feel for it first. So he thought the best thing to do was to sort of backpack around the world and also say, it's, oh, it's a bit of a business trip. So he went to his father to ask, okay, you know, dad, what do you reckon? Do you, he was sort of after his father's approval, but probably more importantly, deep down, he was also after a bit of cash as well. Well, dropping in that he's going to Japan to chase a business trip might have got his dad over the line. But at the end of the day, his dad just said yes. And uh, Phil was obviously super pumped about all of this. So he spent weeks reading, planning, preparing for the trip, um, went on long runs, musing over, over every detail. Then he finally took off. And part of his trip, he obviously arrived in Japan um, on the business part. He'd read a book, something about doing business with Japanese people, you learned that the key is not to be pushy. The Japanese, they don't like the hard sell. All negotiations are sort of soft and subtle. So he got to his appointment with the Onitsuka Shoe Company, kind of pumped himself up before, gave himself a bit of a pep talk, and it was the first shoe factory he'd ever seen. They were giving him a tour, and they said, oh, we make 15,000 shoes a month. And mm. Phil's like, hmm, impressive, impressive. But he had no idea. 15,000 could be heaps or almost nothing. He had absolutely no idea. Well, he's what? He's a 24-year-old virgin at this stage <laughs> and he hasn't really done anything in his life. And this is right. pretty ballsy move, you could say, like going all the way to Japan and, and pitching this uh, these people at Onitsuko's shoe factory about his idea. And you're just, mm. you're totally green. You don't know anything about the world at this stage and you're being told we're doing 15,000 shoes a month and he's just bluffing. He's just bluffing and this is probably the start of his, his hero's journey, you could say. That's right. He uh, had basically took that, pitch that presentation that he gave to his university assignment and he gave it to the boardroom of serious Japanese executives. He was reading it out word for word and just like in university when he got to the end, there were no questions and no cheers or no round of applause or anything. He just kind of got to the end of his pitch and they all just sort of sat there and then they walked out of the room and he thought, oh, geez, well, well that's it. That's yeah, my that's dream it. over. That's, it's all done. But uh, it turns out in Japanese culture, they do it a bit differently. They're not going to match your enthusiasm with their enthusiasm straight away because they sort of just walked out of the room when Phil thought it was over. But then they actually came back and said, look, 
Mr. Knight or Philly Boy. We've been thinking a long time about the American market and your timing's been beautiful. And they actually came in with new sketches of, of shoes. And then they started asking Phil all sorts of questions about the US, their market, and in general, the American culture. That's right. They said, oh, you know, Mr. Knight, what company are you with? And Phil said, oh, shit, I don't have a company. And yeah. he just whipped out of nowhere, oh, Blue Ribbon. My company's called the Blue Ribbon Sports of Portland, Oregon. And then they said, oh, okay, well, if we took our shoes to America, you know, how big's the American shoe market? Again, he had no idea. And he just said, oh, $1 billion. I thought, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so they said, Mr. Knight, would Blue Ribbon be interested in representing Tiger Shoes in the US? And he was like, mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, his, uh, his shocking presentation, they got no applause, seemed to work pretty all right with the Japanese business people. And uh, he slipped in their first order for a sample of just 50 bucks worth of shoes. Yeah, well, little did he know they were going to pitch him at the end of this presentation. Just goes to show like he threw the Hail Mary pass out from, from nowhere and there was every chance nothing was going to happen, but there was really something calling from him on the inside to take this trip. And really, this is the moment where his, his passion and intense devotion to this one topic finally just came into fruition and could have ended all sorts of ways, but he was probably on the right side of the luck of, of what he should be, <laughs> as, we, as we all know the end of the story. <laughs> That's right. After his uh, big backpacking slash business trip, he finally got home a couple of months later and he, as soon as he got home, he found the, the box of shoes that had been shipped over, the samples. He had 12 shoes that were creamy white uh, with a bit of gold on them. Is that right? He said they were, they were beautiful and uh, he, of his 12 shoes, he chucked one on to go for a bit of a walk and then he sent two pairs to his old track coach, Bill Bowman. Bill Bowman was really the first one that made him really think about what shoes people put on their feet. Yeah, he was a master motivator, a natural leader of young men. All the kids, especially the track athletes, looked up to Bowman. He seemed like a bit of a dark side man, a bit of a hard ass, mm. and someone who just give you no sort of encouragement and which uh, I think just ironically makes you just crave their appreciation <laughs> a lot more if it's just so hard to get. So you'd see a young man, that's the first person you want to impress. Hey, I've been on a business trip. Mm. Um, look at these shoes I've come back with. And he didn't know what to expect from Bowman. Yeah, he, he sort of half wanted Bauman to buy, you know, an order of shoes so he could sell them to him and, you know, as his first step as a businessman to make his first sale. But probably more importantly than that, he really just wanted his approval more than anything. He wanted Bauman to just say, oh, this is, these are not bad. Good job, Philly. So Bauman himself, he loved shoes. He, was, he tinkered things. He always grabbed other people's shoes when you'd go for a run with other <laughs> shoes and then you come back and... Your shoes are missing. You think someone's <laughs> stolen, but it turns out Bowman's pinched them and he started just tinkering with them, playing with them, trying to make them lighter, give them less burden, more speed and more lightness. He tried all sorts of things, animal, vegetable, minerals, kangaroo skin, cod skin, um, all sorts of things. <laughs> so when he got these shoes, he really wanted to see what this lad's opinion was. But Bowman turned out, he said, look, these Japanese shoes, they're pretty bloody good. How about letting me in on the deal? <laughs> Phil would have just, he was just happy with that first part. You know, these Japanese shoes are pretty good. He wasn't expecting, you know, can I get in on this deal? Uh, Bauman, he didn't just want to buy a couple of pairs for his team. He actually wanted to be part of this thing and he shot his hand out and said 50 50. Phil was a bit like, hmm, maybe, I was thinking maybe 90 10 or 95 5. But he kind of just <laughs> said yes straight away. They eventually kind of went to the 50 50. So intimidating. Hey? <laughs> There's not much negotiation going on at that stage. I think. Bloody hell, it's a good deal for Bowman. Oh, incredible deal for Bowman. <laughs> probably the best deal in history for Bowman, looking back. Probably a $20 billion or more, whatever. What's Nike worth these days? Yeah, it'd be a lot. 
It'd be a lot. And what did he do? He just, I don't know what he did for his 50%. He sold a couple of pairs. He had a team of runners. I suppose he, he did a lot it, of stuff. Later down the track. Later down the track. More, yeah. kind of stuff. So they're worth 170 bills. So he's not, he wouldn't have 50% of it now, but he, got, he, he did all right out he's, of it. He's, he's had a good payday somewhere along the way. That's for sure. So Phil's sales strategy was quite simple and brilliant. He just simply just drove all over Pacific Northwest to various track meets. Now, it's probably, I'm maybe bringing up Innovators Dilemma too much, but I can imagine your Adidas's and your big shoe companies at the time, it's probably too small for I'd actually drive to the individual track events and just sell directly Definitely. like a hustler one-on-one because Phil, he was in a startup. He could do a, more of a David strategy rather than a Goliath. So, he went up and just literally just spoke to the coaches, the runners, the fans and just showed them what he had and... The response was always the same. They just ordered them and he couldn't fill the orders fast enough. These shoes that he got from Japan and brought them back here were an absolute hit. And the reason they were selling so fast is because he realized he wasn't selling. He was actually, mm. he believed in running that much. It was who he was as a person. He wasn't going up to someone and just trying to sell him a, a, a cake that he doesn't really give a shit about. <laughs> he cared about these things and that sort of, that it smelt, you could mm. smell it on him, this careness. <laughs> And that's why it was so easy for him to pass them on. I think he'd done some stuff uh, previously, like as part-time jobs. Mm. I think he made like selling insurance or something. And he um, sucked at that, I think. He absolutely sucked. So he thought he had no chance at selling, but he realized that he wasn't selling at all. He just believed in it. And it really is that. I think it is a good example of that David versus Goliath. It is the, the David strategy. It's probably hard to do. It's like the who is the Lawrence of Arabia going to war the long way around. It's probably hard to do, but eventually you can maybe slay Goliath if you've got a, <laughs> if you've got a slingshot in your back pocket or something. A few slingshots. <laughs> it's a bit more of a – or like the other analogy of like playing um, the full-court press defense. Mm. It's like too hard to go to the full-court press defense, but if you do, you're probably going to ironically be, be mm. better to win. So Adidas, they were probably turn their nose up to this full-court <laughs> press style that, uh, that Phil was doing. Definitely. After a, a couple of months, it sold out of his first shipment and he put in another order. This time, he went to order uh, 100 from Tiger in Japan, cost him a 1000 bucks. He went back to his father. He said, oh, business is going all right, but the bank of dad was closed for business. So, yeah. he said, sorry, son, you're going to have to go find some more money somewhere else. So, he went over to the Bank of Oregon and got himself a big old juicy loan. So Phil, he had others on commission who was helping him sell shoes. They made a buck seventy-five per shoe and no salary. So you know, if you're selling a lot, probably a good deal on commission. But for himself, he couldn't um, get the salary from the actual company, and he had cash flow problems. He had to fund uh, Blue Ribbon at the time, so he had to go out there and get a real job. So something safe, and especially when everything went bust, because I think. Although his, his passion and his drive was towards Blue Ribbon, deep down by reading this, it sounded like he thought it probably won't work out anyway. Yeah, he's hedging his bets. He passed his uh, CPA accounting exams and so he was hired by Pricewaterhouse. And so he said, like it or not, I was a bean counter. He said that on his tax returns, even though he'd been sort of self-employed selling shoes and making a bit of coin on the side, on his tax returns that year, he put down his occupation as accountant. And now it was a pretty good apprenticeship. It wasn't just all a shitty job where he didn't want to work for because they had all sorts of clients at PwC, so interesting startups and established companies selling everything imaginable like lumber, water, power, food. And he got to like audit these companies, dig right down, pull them apart, put them back together and sort of try and figure out himself what makes a company tick and makes them fail. And 
one of the things he learned out of all of this was always the lack of equity was the leading cause of failure. So I'm guessing, you know, they don't have liquidity in the bank and then a bill comes in and they can't pay it and then bang, all of a sudden your company was there yesterday, it's no longer there. That's right. One approach to this job would just be, oh, I just need to pay the bills. I'll do as little as possible. But Phil's approach was to realize that actually this is probably a good apprenticeship, a good way to learn about how big companies work or how they don't work and what to learn in the future. Once he'd kind of made that, maybe as a future episode might might tell us about, once he'd sort of made that decision that he was going to do something on his own but use this as a learning opportunity, he was able to really make the most of it. Well, that one decision can turn a pretty boring, shitty old job, which a lot of people would see as um, mind-numbing, working at a big corporate firm like PwC. But as soon as you see it as a, an urgent apprenticeship to actually um, use this for your longer-term vision about what you want to do in the world, then all of a sudden, you, all these opportunities of learning start popping up. And he was working pretty bloody hard. He was working six days a week at PwC. Then he was spending early mornings and late nights on Blue Ribbon, plus that one extra day he had off, plus all of his vacations. But he had no friends, did no exercise, he had no social life, but he was completely content. His life was totally out of whack, really out of balance, but he didn't care. He wanted more imbalance. He wanted just to go even more extreme. Yeah, well, it's that old question, uh, what is it? Like, is it um, live to work or work to live? Out of his paradigm, it's probably the opposite because work is his life at that stage and Work is play for him, and he's. <laughs> a, I was just thinking, there's a bit of a duality there, you know. Work, life, is it two separate things? Is it one thing? Bit of zen, bit of zen, <laughs> bit of zen another another upcoming, <laughs> upcoming next week, I think. Next yeah. week, oh, there you go. But really, he wanted it to be play, and he learned what he needed to learn from PwC, and he wanted to give that the boot. But at the same time, it wasn't possible because Blue Ribbon wasn't earning enough money to be able to support him. Despite they were on track for doubling sales for the fifth straight year now. Yeah. So, we're five years in. This is the obviously the seed company that ended up being Nike. And five years in, he still couldn't justify a salary at the yeah. very start. So, five. what's two to the power of five? Two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty. So, he's gone 30x in the last five years, but he, he's still sort of not making enough money to, to make ends meet. But what he wanted to do now, he's, he, wanted, he still needed the job to fill in the gap. But he wanted a different sort of a job, a job where he could still make enough money to pay his bills but required as few hours as possible and leaving all that time on the side for his passion. So the first thing, that, I don't know if this is a good thing, but the first thing he thought of was, was I'll go and teach at a university. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, some call for him in uh, long story short and that he found his partner and uh, yeah. they're happy together now. So really, this is how he did it. He started purely uh, as a little side hustle and then trying to get his day job to go as much cash as possible. His side hustle grew a fair bit to the point where he could drop PwC where you're just trying to get as much cash as possible for um, spend more time on the side hustle. Then finally, he dropped his uh, Portland State University professor role to work now what was previously his full-time hustle, sorry, his side <laughs> hustle to be his full-time hustle now. And that was in 1968 because they'd now just posted 150 grand in sales and Looking at the, the numbers and the graph, it was up and to the right, the direction you want it to be. They're on track for 300K in 1969. It's always dangerous to say, oh, we doubled for the last five years, so we'll double again. But for Philly Boy, it seemed to work out that way. But they're on track for 300K in sales. So just before his 31st birthday, he made the bold move. He quit uh, the university and went full-time in his company and just gave himself a little, little uh, side income, 18K as sort of the what general manager and the, and the, and the founder of the company. So, not bad and when you really take the leap about going for yourself, your own salary in the company, you're really going all in on the thing you've built 
and things were going really well. But as you said, Ash, show everything looks like it's going up and to the right, and you start <laughs> doing those predictions. I think early on in the podcast, I did a few up and the rights, <laughs> growing at twenty percent a month. We were going to be at what I think fifty-five billion downloads by now <laughs> per month, <laughs> and then uh, it'll be living in a yacht and all that sort of shit. So things that you think will just always be like that um, probably don't always turn out to be exactly like that up and to the right. When those uh, projections start getting a little bit out of whack, sometimes the uh, perceptions don't line up with the reality. In 1970, so what about 18 months into his full time, he flew back to Japan to meet with the executives again. His initial deal had sort of had run out, and so he said to the uh, Onitsuka company, "Okay, let's renew this. Let's go for another five years." And they said, "Oh, we're thinking maybe three years." And he was like, "Hmm, that's a bit. That's a bit sus." One of the big dogs uh, in Japan, his name was Kitami. He was there at what in the back seat of the boardroom the first time he went over and he'd made his way further along the table and all of a sudden he'd been promoted to the big dog there. And he when Phil gave him a bow to congratulate him, he, he sensed a bit of coldness. He, there was a bit of a, a few daggers in Katami's eyes that he didn't like mm. the didn't like the look of. Well, Katami was roughly the same age as Phil at this stage, and there's probably a bit of just comparisons going on and you know, some subtle envy or whatever it might be. And Katami, for some reason, he was he was against Phil from here and Phil sensed it and he'd started to grow much more anxious because just quite recently, probably since Katami came on board, their supply started becoming chronically late and, and the performance from Japan and, and the Tiger Shoes company supplying them was really going down the gurgler. They were selling basically all the shoes in Japan first and then whatever was left over, the scraps, that's what they'd send to Phil in America. But what could he do? He had no leverage. This was his only supplier, so he kind of just had to cop it. Well, one of the laws is never make, uh, what is it, always make people dependent on you. And this was the case. Phil's company was 100% dependent on a single supplier. All their eggs were in one basket. And they could do what they want. They could raise prices. They could put them down the bottom of the priority list like they were actually doing. And Phil really couldn't do anything about it. And then another issue was the bank. Every time he'd sold out and needed more money to buy the next bigger order because he was buying twice as many shoes, he went to the bank to get a bit more. It started out as a uh, thousand, then you know, ten thousand, then fifty thousand, then a hundred thousand, and they're about to get six hundred thousand in sales for the year. And so Phil went to the bank and said, "Can I up my loan to one point two million? And the bank said, "No way, champ! You're a brand new startup. We don't give that sort of money out to people like you." And he was completely maxed out, and so he's hitting troubles on on both ends. Yeah, so some issues are starting to pop up here and like a lot of companies will think, hey, let's this, the solution to all this is to raise money, um, do an IPO. If we sell 30% of Blue Ribbon at two bucks a share, they could raise 300 grand overnight and this would solve all their problems. So they put all the advertising out there and expecting it's a huge <laughs> response, a big party um, about this new exciting company, new startup. That has doubled in sales every year for the last seven or eight years. Yeah, well, you could jump on it. I, I, I could see a few Facebook posts of Mel Gibson sort of <laughs> selling, buying Bitcoin on or whatever, on that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, there was dead silence, just nothing. Deafening silence, not one phone called and ultimately they withdrew. And it was a bit of a lesson in his hubris because at that point, he'd overvalued Blue Ribbon. He put the calling out for two bucks a share and obviously everyone thought it was much it was worthless compared to what he thought. That's right. Almost a decade of his life and it was worth effectively zero dollars because no one wanted to buy it. So, we're 10 years into the Nike story, man, yeah. at this stage. That's a that's a long time of to get to this point where you put an IPO out and nothing's happening and everything's sort of flopping. So, he's in strife. He desperately needs money. The bank's not going to give it to him. Nobody wants to buy stock. 
So he kind of was at the bottom of the barrel here, and the last thing he wanted to do was the thing he had to do was just put the hard word on everybody he knew, friends, family, casual acquaintances, blokes he met in the pub, former employees, current employees, even one of his top employees, he went to his parents and they said, oh, we can give you 5K out of their retirement savings. And that was kind of their last dollar. When he went to their house, he said, thank you for giving me everything you got. And they said, oh, yeah, we've just left ourselves 2K just to live on. He said, oh, can I have that as well? And so he ended up taking 7K off this uh, this poor old defenseless couple. Yeah. And they just said, well, we kind of got to trust you. Our son works for you. So if we can't trust you, who can we trust? So he's really scraping the bottom here, right? And I, I like that story because at the end, you, you do find out they, they made a lot of cash. That 7K went to 20-something mil or didn't it? Something 20 something like that. mil or something like that, which is <laughs> phenomenal. So that was happening and he thought things were looking up. But then he got another traveling call. And he heard that a shoe distributor on the East Coast had been approached by the Tiger Shoe Company from Japan and asked them to become the new US mm. distributor. So Phil thought he was the only one in the US and they thought they had that deal. And the one company had all the leverage on him, we're going to try and push him aside. <laughs> so he was getting, you'd be pretty pissed off. Very, he was very worried. So he called up his mate, or not so much mate, Katami and said, Katami, come out to the US. We'll give you a tour of our facilities. We'll take you around. We'll show you a good time. You can come meet this uh, legend, Bill Bauman. And so Katami said, okay, yeah, I'll come over. The first thing Katami did when he got there, he said, blue ribbon sales are disappointing. He said, what? what do you mean? We've doubled every single year. He said, not good enough. It should be triple. <laughs> so probably not the best way to start a, a friendly negotiation. Well, you Katami, that sort of mindset... You throw out any number and he's not happy. <laughs> Tell me he just doesn't like you, I don't think. If you can double, then double, then double, then double, then double, and they say, no, nah, time to triple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's You're a, not in a good spot. He's a Judas. But Phil was, could play pretty dirty himself because when Kitman, he tried to do a hostile takeover and said, sell us your company, he took off to, to go to the bathroom to do a quick whiz. And Philly boy, he cheeky. Here. He actually went through the suitcase of Katami and pulled out a lot of the documents. And then Katami came back and went away. And then Phil basically had all the information. That's right. It turned out that on this trip, where Phil had invited him on this trip just to have a bit of a tour, turns out Katami had booked in 18 different meetings with other shoe companies to try to basically pull the rug out from underneath him. So at this point, they had that going on. And then he went to the bank and tried to get more money from them. And he got the response hey, I'm afraid. For First National will no longer be able to do business with you and we're not going to be able to issue cash on your behalf. And think about it at the same time, they're leveraged to their hilt. Mm. Like most people go from paycheck to paycheck on the precipice, but for them, they were doing that as a company because if they had any shipment of shoes that was late, I remember we were saying the, the main thing you learned about uh, companies going under was, was equity and sort of cash flow and liquidity issues. For them, if they had any sort of month that had a liquidity issue, that would be the end of Blue Ribbon. He could have gone safer, man. He didn't He didn't need to grow at this speed because he decided to grow at this speed. Then he was also putting this risk on the company. To top it all off, the dock workers went on strike. So they had a shipment of shoes come in from Japan. He went to go and pick it up. All the doors were locked. All the containers were locked. His shoes were stuck inside. They were all on strike. He couldn't even get them out to keep making sales. So he had boxes and boxes of shoes just sitting on the docks and no way to get it. So effectively, this company that had really born from nothing and spent nine, eight or nine years growing, by the end of 1971, they had $1.3 million of sales, but they're on life support. This is probably common in 
all the founder stories that we've read, there is a big belly of the whale moment um, for what we did Ray Dalio's book. For him, it was pretty much going bankrupt really early and losing all the investors' money. Steve Jobs got booted out of out of Apple. What was it for Da Vinci? Some shit happened. <laughs> Some shit happened Some when we read that. <laughs> but this was his. And for him, it was a point where he could really just end things and actually he's probably young enough to, to go back to a PwC or anything or double down and look for a new strategy. So Phil had learned a couple of things. He realized that Katami and the Onitsuka company, they couldn't be trusted. The relationship couldn't be salvaged. They had a five-year deal, but he needed to find a way out. As his employees all found out about these dodgy backroom deals that Katami and Onitsuka were doing, he looked around, people kind of slumped forward. They were just looking at the papers. They really looked dead and lifeless. The nation's economy was was tanking. They were kind of headed towards a recession. There's all these political things that were going on, rising unemployment, the war in Vietnam, and this just on top of all that just seemed like they were all cooked. Yeah, well, they all thought the, the whole story was over. It was a little fun journey, and Phil had brought everyone into the room to, to speak to him, and everyone on their mind, they were thinking, Phil's probably going to pull the pin here and say <laughs> we're done. So Phil, he started his speech to everyone and croaked his throat, and he told him the situation, what's happening with the Katami, didn't pull any punches about what's going on. Then he said, so in other words, what I'm trying to say is we've got them right where we want them. Everyone kind of sat up a bit then. I don't think Phil even knew that he was going to say that at the start of the meeting. It just sort of popped out. But everyone had this little newfound confidence. He realized that, okay, we can do something else here. We don't have to sell somebody else's brand anymore. We don't have to work for Onitsuka. They've been holding us back and keeping us down really with all these late orders and and poor quality and mixing up and sending us the wrong things and didn't want to hear ideas for our designs. So it seemed like there's a bit of an opportunity here to make a completely different company. Well, they sold 2 million sales last year and none of it was really due to Onitsuka, so the tire company. And it was more so a testament of their ingenuity and hard work. And let's just not look at this as a crisis. This day, what is happening in our moment right now, it's our liberation and let's call this our Independence Day. Phil said, yes, it's going to be tough. I'm not going to lie to you. We're definitely going to be basically going to war here, but we know the terrain. We know our way around. He said, if we win, actually, no, when we win, then there's great things on the other side of victory. He says, come on, people, we are still alive here. So Phil himself, he needed to get off the the mother's milk and suck in the teat of his old Makitami. He needed to go (laughs) and get new factories. So he went to uh, one in Mexico and... Pretty shit name for a factory. They called it Canada. <laughs> the Canada shoot factory, factory in Mexico. Mexico. It's just confusing. And then they started going. So Phil said, look, we need to place an order of 3,000 shoes, um, soccer shoes, which we're going to rebrand as football shoes. I think they're the same thing over there. But they handed a contract and looked at the dotted line above his name and it, and it dawned on him they had to come up with a new name for the company. Yeah, they need a new name. They need a new logo. They had a few ideas. Some bloke said, oh, let's call it Falcon. And then someone else said, oh, I've got a great name. Let's call it Bengal. It feels like, no, 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 guys, I've got, the gra- I've got a great name here. This could be one of the biggest companies of all time, one of the most recognized brands of all time. Let's call it Dimension 6. <laughs> God. And then a few, uh, few like, crickets. What the fuck are you talking about? That's Dimension a shit name. Six. It's it's a shit that's it. Dimension 6, we're calling it. Dimension 6 shoes, that's us. Yeah. So, they went with that for a little while, <laughs> but everyone knew it was shit, except for Phil at this stage. <laughs> but he started to realize it was shit as well. But one day, uh, one of the employees of the company actually, 
came up with the new name from a dream they had. He called up his 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 direct manager and said, "Look, I had a dream last night, and the name came to me." <laughs> no one, no one was taking this seriously. A dream, a, a name, a dream. We've got the best name ever, Dimension Six. And uh, what is it? Nike. Yeah, there we go. That sounded a bit better, I reckon. Came from the dream. It was from the <laughs> goddess of victory. And it did look back as Phil in his travels around the world. He did travel around the world. And one of those days, he stopped at the um, the goddess of Nike at the, was it the Pantheon or something like that. In The Parthenon, I think. The Pantheon or the Parthenon. And, uh, and he did get struck by inspiration on that world travel. So, the, things are linking back and there are a few of the coincidences popping here and Nike just spoke to him and it just resonated with the company. I think they had a like a, a graphic designer, just like a uni student who was on basically minimum wage and they were just sending her a few things to do, like make a few posters and she came up with a swoosh, didn't she as well? She did, yeah. Just sort of out of nowhere, just made this swoosh and again, out from nothing, became one of the most recognizable brands in history. So, from the factories, the first shoes were, weren't too bad. They weren't perfect. I mean, the logo wasn't straighter than Nike. Uh, the midsole on the shoe was a bit thin. There could be a bit more lift on this one. So, the quality wasn't right there with the Japanese. And he made his notes to the factory officials about all the imperfections. But they were really good enough to, and they had something to work with. That's right. He knew that even though they weren't quite there yet, he could see that they could get there, which was all he needed to break free from Katami and the Japanese and now the next thing you had to do, they said, okay, well, you got all these different shoes. Well, we need to sort of name them. And Phil was a, an accountant by trade. He was always a numbers man. He was never the creativity person, so he panicked a bit. And they held up a tennis shoe in his uh, Forest Hill, which was where the first US Open was. And then they held up a basketball shoe and he said Blazer, which was his NBA team in his hometown. And all of a sudden, all these, he started just flowing. He just absolutely was flowing. He was... He had running shoes that he called Marathon and Boston and Finland and Cortez. He was really in the zone and he was just yelling out names left, right and center and they'd named all these shoes in an hour. He'd never really experienced something like this. It was a feeling that he's probably never really experienced. It was like pure inspiration that moment where in the space of just an hour, pretty much all the names of the biggest brands of shoe that Nike's <laughs> ever going to come with just, just sort of hit him and smacked him across the face. And he really felt like an artist and a creator and he looked back over his shoulder and you know looked at the officers and the people in the room and thought like we, we made this and we're mm. gonna be all right when he got back to oregon to show off these new shoes he took him to bowman and bowman said yeah they're, they're pretty good they're still not perfect he reckons they could do better and then bowman was kind of thinking about it the legendary track coach who had all these runners and one uh sunday morning his wife was cooking breakfast uh waffles and he saw that when the waffle got sort of pulled off the waffle line, he saw this nice gridded pattern. He thought, oh, something in that, I reckon. There's something in that. So he asked his wife, you know, can I borrow the waffle line? He took it out to his garage. He had a vat of urethane. I don't know why. Oh, he had it left over from some installation that he just kept, kept a little vat of urethane. So he chucked it in the waffle line, heated it all up. He went to open it. And he basically sealed it shut. <laughs> so that was a big flop. Literally cooked up the, the waffle <laughs> iron there. And a lot of people no, out there. His wife wouldn't have been happy. No more waffles. No more waffles. <laughs> and not for him either. The waffle, the waffle future's over, you'd think. But a lot of people would just call it quits right there. But Bauman, he was a madman. He was a wild man. His 50-50 deal probably started to pay off <laughs> with this, this wild sort of stuff because he just tinkered. He was a tinkerer and an inventor himself. Because next time he bought another waffle iron, probably expensive pieces of equipment back then. And this time he filled it with plaster instead. 
But this time, when the plaster hardened, the jaws of the waffle line actually opened and it was no problem. That's a step forward. So he thought, okay, now I've got this mold. Maybe I can use this for the rubber. And then he put the rubber on, but he, when he tried to pull them apart, they're both too brittle and they both just broke. So, okay, there's another failure. A lot of people would give up, but Bowman, he knew he was getting closer. So he gave up the waffle line idea altogether. He'd learnt what he needed from the waffle and he took a sheet of stainless steel now and punched it with the holes, created a waffle-like surface similar to from the waffle island. Then he brought it back to the rubber company and said, hey, make this. The steel now was sort of flexible and pliable enough that they could work with it. He had all these different sizes and different things to try out. Eventually, he got a, a sole, he, like a, a rubber running sole. He stitched it together. As we heard at the start, he was a bit of a tinkerer, so he was able to stitch it onto a pair of shoes. He put it on one of his best runners and said, take off and see how you go. And he's like, man, this guy's on fire. He's the fastest he's ever run. <laughs> so he kicked ass. And the Nike does have that famous waffle um, waffle pattern. Other people probably copied afterwards. But really, it was, it was a bit of divine inspiration which hit Bowman at this stage, hit Phil previously. A bit like Edison in Menlo Park or Da Vinci in Florence or Tesla in Wardenclyffe. And this divine inspiration can strike people at times and, and Ben, I'll just work with it. Phil was wondering at the time if Bill had any idea that he was making history. He was completely recreating an entire industry, transforming the way athletes would run and stop and jump for generations. But all it was was just Bill and his uh, Sunday morning waffles. It was just it's you a pretty big... how unremarkable <laughs> it would have seemed at the time, right? Yeah. You're just looking at a waffle machine. Oh, I'll just put some uh, polyurethane in there and see what <laughs> happens. And, but that really is changing the world. We fast forward here, what, 35 years or so? They've made billions of dollars. We know what Should... happened. We, <laughs> not, we know where the story went from there. That's it. That's it. You can fill in the gaps yourself. They made shitloads of money and they've you become the biggest shoe company in the world. Uh, after 40 years, Phil, he'd stepped down as CEO. He'd left in good shape. Their sales had been uh, $16 billion in 2006 when he finished up compared to their biggest rival, Adidas, was on $10 billion. Uh, their clothes and shoes are in 5,000 stores worldwide. They had 10,000 employees. Uh, so they've done all right. Phil himself, he's got gratitude and the youngest employees at the company also have gratitude because they have also made this informal discussion group. They call themselves the spirit of 1972, which is really the spirit of what this, the essence of this book is all about. And that was like their Independence Day, yeah? Around their Independence Day. And they had their own unique culture where they'd work hard all day. They'd go to the pub, they'd booze up till late in the morning, <laughs> but then they'd work and as they're boozing up and then the one sober one would sort of rock up the next day and ironically miss pretty much the whole day of work because all the productive stuff got done at the pub. Phil had made a few good mates along the journey. He watched Pete Sampras crushing opponents at Wimbledon and when Pete Sampras won his first one, he tossed his winning racket to Phil who was in his uh, in his stands. And then uh, Sampras's arch-rival Agassi, when Agassi beat him in the US Open, he yelled out, Phil, we did it! And then uh, Tiger just sinks apart in Augusta and wins and says, oh, Phil, you've made my whole career. <laughs> You're putting a bit of May on this. And then Michael Jordan said the only reason Michael Jordan was any good because he wore Phil's Nike shoes. <laughs> There's a bit of me, me, me time at the end here. He's saying how good he was. But it's, I suppose if you even half of that, you, you're, pretty, you're onto something pretty big. Uh, I, I, I think they're pretty cool moments, man. Like he's just saying that along the way, like the big moments are the people who we see as superstars. And he's sort of just pinching himself that like LeBron James, for example, another one, for a private moment and 
gives Phil a Rolex from 1972, engraved, and thanks for taking a chance on me. Because remember, like, the, I think LeBron, you get paid so much at it at a young age because he took a chance on him. Or another basketball is Jordan when his father is murdered. Phil goes there and he's got given a front row seat to mm. the to the funeral. Yeah, you can kind of sense it was there was a lot more for Phil than just making money. Yeah, there was definitely a lot more to it. He says there are a lot of untapped resources out there in all of us, both natural and human. And with the world has it at its disposal to really solve any crisis like he's been able to solve along the way. All we have to do is work and study, study and work as hard as we can. Or put it another way, we must all be professors of the jungle. He says the money obviously came rolling in, but it didn't really affect them that much and not for too long because nobody at Nike was driven by money. They were driven by something else outside of that. But he says that that's kind of the nature of money. If you've got money or you don't have money, it's really defining your days, defining your life. And really our task as humans is to not let it define us. Of course, he's got advice for the people who are really on the similar journey to what Phil is, the iron class, the innovators, the rebels. And he says, "You've look, if you're going to take this path, if you're going to step in the arena, you're always going to have a bullseye on your back. And the better you get and the more successful you get, you think the bullseye would slow down and get smaller, <laughs> but it actually grows in, in size. And this isn't just an opinion of his, it's the law of nature. Luck, he admits, plays a big role. He likes to acknowledge it. Athletes certainly get lucky. You know, poets and creators get lucky. Businesses get lucky. But at the same time, hard work is critical. A good team is essential. Brains and determination, they're invaluable. At the end of the day, you can do all this stuff and there's still a little bit of luck on some side. You might not call it luck to you. It might be uh, the Tao or Logos or Dharma or Spirit or God. But there's something there that the harder you work, though, the better your Tao or the better God rewards you or whichever way you want to look at it, there's no substitute for working hard. So now he's obviously been divinely inspired and regularly goes to Mass and he's going to tell people above everything else, just have faith in yourself. Also have faith in faith, not faith as others define it, but as you define it. 